This is Real Talk with the Executive Council of Australian Jewelry. I'm your host, Alex Rivchin. In this episode, I'll be talking about anti-Zionism, and my talk will be based on the final chapter of my new book, Zionism, the Concise History. If we define anti-Zionism simply as the campaign to thwart or defeat the objectives of Zionism, we need to first understand exactly what Zionism is and what it sought to achieve. Zionism refers to support for or belief in the right of the Jewish people to exercise national self-determination in some part of their ancestral homeland, and it emerged in its modern form in the late 19th century with the aim of ingathering some of the Jews who had been scattered throughout the world into a single national polity through which they could freely determine their own political status and safeguard and enlarge those things that make the Jewish people distinct their culture, their history, their heritage, their language, their traditions, and their religion. The specific objective of Zionism, as articulated in the manifesto adopted at the first Zionist Congress held in Basel, Switzerland in 1897, was to establish a national home for the Jewish people in Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, secured under public law. Anti-Zionism is therefore opposition to these concepts. Now, Zionism always had its enemies, ranging from anti-Semites repelled by any movement to liberate or emancipate the Jews from persecution and statelessness, politicians and diplomats fearful of Arab antagonism, and some Jews who were sceptical about whether Zionism could succeed and instead favoured the path of assimilation as a way to cure society of anti-Semitism. The question of support for or opposition to Zionism began very much as an internal Jewish debate. While Zionism was rapidly gaining favour in places of intense, violent anti-Semitism like Russia, Romania and Poland, among the more integrated Jewish communities in liberal democratic societies, the struggle for full civil and legal rights for Jews and not a national movement was seen as the way to ensure that the Jews and their contribution to humanity did not vanish from this earth. Typical of this assimilationist mindset, in the United States, for example, Gustavus Poznanski, the spiritual leader of a synagogue in South Carolina, declared, This synagogue is our temple, this city our Jerusalem, this happy land our Palestine, and as our fathers defended with their lives that temple, that city and that land, so will their sons defend this temple, this city and this land. Poznanski spoke of a people who had happily accepted their condition of exile and had found their salvation not in a national return, but in the melting pot of America. In Britain, Edward Montague, a Jew, who had been elected to the British Parliament and later served as Secretary of State for India and Minister of Munitions, viewed with alarm the growing support for Zionism in the British government and urged the British cabinet to reject Zionism in the months before the Balfour Declaration. He called the Jewish liberation movement a mischievous political creed, fearing for his own privileged position in society, warned that once the Jews achieve their national home, they will be treated as foreigners in every country but Palestine. Indeed, many of the most important Zionist thinkers, including Leon Pinsker and Theodor Herzl, began by advocating for assimilation and not a Jewish national movement, and only became Zionists after personal awakenings that convinced them that without a national centre, the Jews were facing complete disaster. So early anti-Zionism, especially from within the Jewish world, 
was not necessarily a product of hatred towards the Jews, and often came from a well-held, though hopelessly misguided belief about the nature of anti-Semitism. But the events of the 1940s ended any serious contemplation over the correctness or necessity of Zionism. The Holocaust, which saw the army of a sophisticated nation traverse the European continent with the mission of extinguishing every last Jewish life, aided by collaborationist populations, governments and police forces in virtually every place they entered, proved without question that a national home for the Jewish people was not only a legal right, it was an existential necessity. In the wake of the near annihilation of the Jews, to question the necessity of the Jewish state, which could offer refuge to its scattered diaspora and protect the surviving Jews from further disaster, was a mockingly ludicrous position. And one need only ask the Kurds, the Uyghurs, the Tibetans, the Assyrians, the Yazidi, the persecuted and abandoned peoples of our time, what it means to be stateless in an international system marked by self-interest, sloth and parsimony. If the Holocaust pushed anti-Zionism and the idea that assimilation would save the Jews into intellectual irrelevance, the establishment of the State of Israel in May 1948 ensured that anti-Zionism ceased to be a tenable moral position. No longer the opposition to a movement or an idea, anti-Zionism now stood for the opposition to the continuing existence of the State of Israel. In other words, anti-Zionism now meant support for the destruction of a sovereign state. The destruction not only of Jewish self-determination in the national home, but the destruction of the one place permanently guaranteed to offer sanctuary to persecuted Jews around the world. As such, the cause of anti-Zionism was deserted by those genuinely concerned with alleviating Jewish suffering and preserving Jewish human and national rights. In the place of anti-Zionist assimilationist Jews, like Montague and Australia's own Sir Isaac Isaacs, emerged a coalition of groups and actors, bitterly opposed to one another on all manner of things, but united completely in their desire to topple the state of the Jews. For the tiny minority of Jews who identify as anti-Zionist, public opposition to the existence of Israel has come to represent a form of converting out of being Jewish. As Israel came to attain a central place of pride and achievement, both for Israelis and for the Jews who continue to live outside the Jewish state, to express hatred for Israel serves as a repudiation of Jewish particularity in a way that is more complete and more ostentatious than quietly lapsing in one's religious practices. This is in sharp contrast with pre-Israel anti-Zionist Jews, whose commitment to the Jewish people could rarely be faulted. Today, it would be difficult to identify a single mainstream Jewish organization or representative body that is not institutionally committed to the security and survival of the State of Israel. Following the creation of Israel, the most lethal source of anti-Zionism, of course, continued to emanate from the Arab states. Having failed to stop the creation of Israel through political pressure, threats of violence, and finally invasion, they now threaten new conquest and annihilation of the Jewish remnants. Hafez al-Assad, who ruled Syria before the ascent of Islam Bashar, declared on the eve of the Six-Day War in 1967, strike the enemy settlements, turn them into dust, pave the Arab roads with the skulls of Jews, we are determined to saturate this earth with blood and to throw you into the sea. 
the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, the Nazi collaborator Hajim al Husseini, who had first sought to internationalize the Arab Jewish conflict and turn anti Zionism into an Islamic duty, would in time be succeeded in this mission by the Iranian regime following the Islamic Revolution in 1979. Al Husseini had called the Jews bloodsuckers, with whom there could never be peace or accommodation. In 2012, the Iranian Supreme Leader referred to Jewish statehood as a cancerous tumor in the heart of the Islamic world. The extreme political left has emerged as the other dominant force opposed to the continuing existence of a national home for the Jewish people. It was not always so. The Soviet Union had been the first nation to offer legal recognition to the State of Israel. In 1944, the British Labour Party adopted a position on Zionism so extreme in its support of Jewish aspirations and so derisive of the Arabs that the Zionist leadership felt compelled to intervene, pointing out that the Zionists themselves had not been consulted in the drafting and the Jewish settlement of the land must not be detrimental to the Arabs. Left-wing support for Zionism peaked with the founding of Israel and the attempted military conquest of this infant state by far greater forces. Israel's refusal to succumb was positively awe-inspiring to adherents of political movements predicated on defeating mighty foes and toppling structures of power. All international communist parties supported the UN partition plan and the creation of a Jewish state. The US Communist Party called Israel an organic part of the world's struggle for peace and democracy, while the French communists viewed the Jewish fighters as the comrades of resistance fighters throughout the world. But as Israel charted its own course, emerged from its wars economically and militarily superior to the Arabs, and became more ambitious and assertive in how it conducted its security affairs, the support of the Soviet Union and of the international left entered a sharp decline, followed by a complete reversal. Israel's first Prime Minister, David Ben-Gurion, had assured the US ambassador that while Israel welcomes Russian support in the UN, it will not tolerate Russian domination. Israel, Ben-Gurion noted, is Western in its orientation. Its people are democratic and realize that only through the cooperation and support of the US can they become strong and remain free. Seeing that Israel would not be the strategic ally it had hoped for, the Soviet Union cut diplomatic relations with Israel in February 1953, only weeks before the death of Stalin, and following a period of rapid escalation of state anti-Semitism, culminating in the notorious doctor's plot in which Jewish doctors in the Soviet Union were accused of plotting to poison party officials. The Soviet Union now stood as the archenemy of Zionism, arming the Arab armies on Israel's frontiers and ensuring through its unrivaled capacity for propaganda that the concept of Zionism and anyone who dared to support it would soon be drenched in infamy. Once the policy of the Soviet Union towards Israel became one of abject hostility, the state media was saturated with anti-Zionist propaganda, which simply repurposed the anti-Semitic canards of old that had a deep resonance with the public steeped in hostility and derision towards the Jews. In 1963, an anti-Semitic tract titled Judaism Without Embellishment, authored by a Ukrainian Nazi sympathizer, Trofim Kichko, was published by the Ukrainian Academy of Sciences. The themes of the book were familiar a global Jewish conspiracy, a world under threat from Jewish manipulations of world finance, and Jews pulling the strings of capitalism and imperialism. 
It was a latter-day secret protocols of the elders of Zion, and it would be a harbinger of a literary barrage to come, aimed at resurrecting old passions and turning the gullible or sinister against the Jews and their nation-state. Titles began appearing such as Caution Zionism, Zionism Secret Weapon, and Zionism Enemy of the People. Soviet newspapers were again publishing cartoons of bloated, hook-nosed Jewish bankers and all-consuming serpents embossed with the Star of David. The images and publications would find their way not just to the Soviet reader, but through Soviet satellites in Europe, South America, and the Middle East, and through communist chapters and socialist publications throughout the world. These ideas would reach a global audience, eventually nestling in far-left circles in the West, including political parties, human rights organizations, militant trade unions, and of course, university campuses. Anti-Zionism therefore became virtually indistinguishable from anti-Semitism, both in its unremitting, irrational hatred of a dominant symbol of Jewish self-identification and through its reliance on classically anti-Semitic concepts and themes. What was once a legitimate, though ultimately disproven political theory that sought to enlarge Jewish rights through assimilation had become the latest tool for assaulting the basic humanity of the Jewish people. As the British political theorist Alan Johnson observed, what the Jew once was in older anti-Semitism, uniquely malevolent, full of bloodlust, all-controlling, the hidden hand, tricksy, always acting in bad faith, the obstacle to a better, purer, more spiritual world, uniquely deserving of punishment and so on, the Jewish state now is. The target of anti-Semitism had merely shifted from one form of Jewish self-identification to another, from Jewish rituals, Jewish faith, and the Jewish community to the Jewish state. Anti-Semitism, which had traditionally been expressed through religious language and later through race science, is now being expressed in pseudo-political terms. It is no longer the Jews who poison the wells of Europe or murder children for rituals, It is Jewish Israelis or Zionists who deliberately kill children, harvest the organs of Palestinians, control the levers of international power, and stand in the way of world peace. So let us see anti-Zionism clearly for what it is. Let us resolve collectively to banish it from respectable society, like every form of racism and intolerance. And just like earlier forms of anti-Semitism, brought ruin and misery to millions, anti-Zionism, modern anti-Semitism, if unchallenged, will do the same. Tune in to our next episode of Real Talk with the Executive Council of Australian Jewry.